Hello listeners, I'm Sam with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host Amjo Hall is joined by Sanem Guvench, a scholar, psychoanalyst and university professor, as well as co-president of the Vancouver-based psychoanalytic society Lacan Salon. Together, they discuss friendship, authoritarianism, teaching, and how Sanem reads the works of various philosophers, with a focus on how she got into Lacan. Enjoy the episode. Hello, welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us again this week. We have a special guest, Sanem Guvanch, is with us uh, today. Welcome, Sanem. Thank you, Anne, for having me. It's wonderful to be here and chatting with you. Maybe we can uh, begin with you introducing yourself uh, a little bit. Sure. I am a sociologist and I'm working at Emily Carr at the moment as a visiting scholar or scholar in residence. I don't know which one is the official name, but uh, and I've been there since 2017 teaching classes in critical theory, posthumanism, on history of diseases. And I'm also at the moment the co-chair for the Lacan Salon. We're co-chairing it with Hilda Fernandez and we have, uh, we've been like undertaking lots of things. I think we might get into a little bit of those and uh, we're working with a wonderful board. So that's what I'm doing. We first uh, began taking up a conversation a a couple of years back because I've been working on a, a book on friendship and community with my uh, collaborator Matt, and wondering if we can sort of begin with thinking about these concepts of friendship and community. Of course, uh, there's long uh, discussions and histories in, in various ways, going going back to the beginnings of philosophy, but in in more recent times. There, of course, was that period in the in the early '80s, Jean Luc Nancy, Blanchot, and later uh, Gumbin's coming community. There was. Um, uh, uh, Lingus, Alfonso Lingus, and uh, others, uh, Lila Gandhi uh, later on. But wondering if we can sort of begin there to see, you know, how you think about friendship and community or what's at stake, maybe philosophically, or the importance of thinking about these things today that might be different. Yeah, absolutely. No, all, all the philosophers that you have listed, they're, they're all very interesting and they're all, in a sense, have contributed so much to, to philosophy and friendship. And they have basically were saying that the, the basis of philosophy is friendship, right? And, and the question was where to, where to place it. In that podcast we made earlier with with community and friendship, I was talking about Deleuze because he has such an interesting conceptualization of friendship. This is coming from his interview with Claire Parnay, and it's called La Bessudère avec Deleuze. I think that's what it is. Uh, It's only transcribed into English, but if people are interested, they can find it on YouTube, they can find it on pirate uh, torrent sites. (laughs) But one thing that he says, and in there he kind of like goes against the grain, is that friendship is about unhingedness. You don't become friends with someone because you are interested in, I don't know, their their credentials. So uh, I'm a sociologist. If I'm interested, I wouldn't become charmed or I wouldn't necessarily become friend with another sociologist. Uh, what I would be interested as as a person would be somebody's charm. And Deleuze defines that charm as unhingedness, uh, which I think is very interesting because the way that he says that charm, the, the French term that he uses there is kind of like you lose control of your pedals. So you're a little bit out of control. You cannot control yourself. And that is what he says we become attached to, or that is how we how we become friends with people. Now this is very interesting. This is not this is not a philosophical concept of, of friendship. Uh, come to think about it, because it's all about, oh, the friendship is happening somewhere like in between people and in between there's a third. This is a very Aristotelian concept of friendship, but Agamben also uses it, right? Friend is in between. So Deleuze is not saying that. He's not saying that you are 
there with your friend in between. But he's saying that you are captured by what is out of control in the other person. Now, the, the more interesting part is that that section that he talks about friend is actually listed under F uh, and it's fidelity. So Deleuze is kind of like annoyed with that term fidelity because he is talking about being distrustful to his friends. He's almost saying like you are that he's betraying the friendship that again, this concept of like being out of control, but he asks the question, so what does it mean to have something in common? So if we ask that question about the common in terms of community and in terms of like, how do we conceptualize or how can we think about this being unhinged with the community or with what's in common? What emerges is, is can only be a speculative concept of, of friendship or of, of politics, maybe, if you wish. And this term un unhingedness is so interesting because I think, you know, it's a bit crazy, it's a bit wacko, it's out there, but this is what sort of uh, can draw oneself to the other or attach oneself to the other, the the, the not knowing the craziness, the what um, could it be. But I'm wondering if you could unpack that term a little in terms of what comes to you in, in terms of what unhingedness might, might mean and what it did for Deleuze. Well, I don't know what it did for Deleuze. Interestingly, as I was preparing for the podcast, I was also looking for what is philosophy, their last book with uh, Felix Gatteri. And there in the very beginning, there's a part about distrust and friendship. Uh, and I didn't bring it with me, but uh, it's in the introduction. And if people are interested, they can go there. Uh, so there is that too. I don't know if Deleuze knows what he's doing with this concept of unhingedness. Because when I read it through a Lacanian perspective or through through a Lacanian psychoanalytic perspective, what he's describing is the symptom. So what you, he's saying is that you don't become friends with someone you have identifications or someone you have bondings, but you come attached to other person's symptom. And what does symptom mean in Lacanian parlance? It's that symptom is not something that needs to be like cured. You cannot cure your symptom. It is your relationship with the real. And you only find out about your symptom once your relationship with, the, with, with society, once you hit that real, once you hit what is holding you together, once everything that holds you together kind of like collapses and your coping mechanisms do not work. So the symptom emerges there in a way. And Deleuze says that, that that's, and that's someone's singularity. We can never be we can never identify with another person's symptom. So what Deleuze is saying is that actually, in terms of what makes us common and to build a community, we cannot build a community through sameness. We can only build a community through radical difference. This is how I read what Deleuze is saying. But I mean, I do need that, I do need a Lacanian intervention there to make that kind of a deduction and to say that, okay, this is what Deleuze is talking about. And this is what I think that that radical politics there is coming out as, as a collectivity of singularities, as a collectivity of people who are living through their symptoms. That's, I think, what is uh, what's interesting, because if you think about politics, politics is all about the way that we understand it now or community, right? It's all based on sameness and it's all based on what makes us resemble to one another. We are both anti-fascists, you and I. Uh, we have been talking about it and we have our own struggles against authoritarianisms. That's what make us, makes us common. However, Deleuze is talking about a different kind of community here or a different kind of, I wouldn't even want to say community because community is too, um, because I'm also a sociologist, right? I mean, it, I hear like Tonya's, I hear like very face-to-face -face, uh, relationships there. Maybe a collectivity where when I'm talking to someone, I have no way 
of knowing beforehand what I'm going to say. So it's kind of like opening up a different space for a language or a discourse. And in that sense, it's it's very Agambenian if you think about it. I mean, you, you mentioned the coming community and the first section of the coming community is whatever. Mm-hmm. That's right, the whatever singularity. Exactly, the whatever singularity. So I am connecting through you in the Deleuzean sense or in that sense, in an Agambenian sense, through your whatever through your singularity, through what makes you singular, which is also alien to you, by the way. I mean, if we can kind of like go into 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 Lacan, which we might not, but it's also alien to you. So we're connecting through our the things that make us alien. A number of people in town here, including, you know, I'm thinking about Willow Verkirk's uh, work on Nietzsche and friendship and other people that are um, thinking through these questions. I, we recently interviewed TJ Demos and his work around uh, ecology and art history and Travis Holloway's book, um, How to Live at the End of the World. But it's interesting how friendship and community keeps coming up, even tangentially in some of these works, or, or TJ Demos would use the word comrade maybe in the Jody Dean sense. But in, in terms of Lacan, let's say, you know, how else might we think about friendship and community and these challenges of what it means to be together because as we've seen in civil wars or those types of conditions of fracture that just because a community holds together today doesn't mean it's going to hold together tomorrow this thing that um, keeps us together in common for a period of time uh, what are the stakes of durability and these questions of, as we do see signs of authoritarian populism in many places, or the evocation of the nation, let's say, for example, Central and Eastern Europe as an, as an example, it's, it's almost, almost rational that people are evoking a kind of nationalist thing when you think about the pre-1990 period, about a kind of failed experiment to a period of crony capitalism, to the promises of the EU, and that not quite working out at a series of levels, both socially and economically, that the return to the nation of a place uh, where people have been screwed over, you know, by various systems. You can see the, I can understand rationally, at least the political appeal of that, at least from a political point of view. And so how might we unpack that psychoanalytically or philosophically, or what kind of armature can we bring to bear on some of these questions and to some degree they they rest on forming togetherness how to be together we haven't answered that question philosophically as jean-luc nancy said to us in an interview a few months before he passed away as somebody who was you know invested in these questions for 40 50 odd years of his writing well no actually this is a very good question because it's also inviting us kind of like to think about what is it that in these contemporary forms of nationalism, authoritarianism, or like resurging, I want to say resurging communitarianisms, maybe. I don't want to use the word like togetherness or gathering or collectivity, because I always associate those with with more progressive politics or with more radical politics. But what's happening there is that they they are building themselves on very powerful collective and if we want to use again Lacan like phallic signifiers, right? Nation is a very significant phallic signifier. What does it mean to be a Hungarian? What does it mean to be a Greek? So I was just reading, for instance, uh, the other day that uh, in Greece, the wildfires are right now being thought of as as refugees, like setting Greece on fire. Uh, And there are these uh, little vigilante groups that are going on and quote-unquote like hunting refugees. And what, why are they doing it and how are they doing it? Because the right wing there is on the rise and Golden Dawn is on the still rise and, and the contemporary government. And what it's proposing is, is a kind of nationalism, right? So it is bringing people together. What to do, like how can we see the opposite side of it? I'm thinking that, the, I mean, because... If we're going to be talking about the unhingedness, if we're going to be talking about things that are outside of sameness and that when we're stripped off of these phallic signifiers that make us, we might be actually looking into, into the lives and into a refugee existence. 
you know, I'm thinking about Arendt here, for instance, and Arendt has a very short, interesting text that's called We Refugees, uh, where she's talking about her own experience and the experience of her, her colleagues and her friends who had to escape from the camps and make a different life uh, in the States uh, or in different parts of, uh, of the world. And, and you can see there, too, that life there collectivity there needs to be rethought, uh, needs to be invented. And I think that is where this kind of a concept of the unhingedness uh, or that you are like bare to your symptom, like stripped bare to your symptom, which would also have uh, resonance with maybe with Lacanian politics uh, can do. Because a refugee basically is someone who's dislodged and who's dislocated. And it is a life in limbo. One of the very, I, I had multiple friends in Turkey working on the Syrian refugees. And one of the difficulties the Syrian refugees were pronouncing was that they have always been in this form of waiting. So it is kind of like a suspended state. Uh, but if it's a suspended state, uh, we know that Agamben tells us that states of exception open up in the suspended states. But it's not only that the authoritarian governments open up those, that we also have some kind of, a, of an opportunity or a space of potentiality to build something there. But it's again a question of building something from zero in a way, and not resorting to these phallic signifiers like nation, religion, I don't know, like masculinity, or I would even say femininity, uh, because sorority and brotherhood, uh, I would say that they are both very powerful against signifiers. But how to make something with people who are, in a way, living in, in, in some kind of a, a limbo or in a void, Right. I mean, this is the uh, I think this is the question. And I think this is what I find uh, in the very margins of uh, of Deleuze talking about fidelity or unhingedness or like to think about the common through through a collectivity of symptoms or through a collectivity of not something that we hold in common, not uh, but uh, but almost a foreign language, creating a different discourse, creating a different language out of nothing. When we were speaking the other day, you had mentioned this concept or you were referencing something around the topologies of the void. You're writing a lot about the void and thinking about it. I'm wondering if you could speak to that uh, a little bit. Well, I mean, it is, as I was just saying, like it's it came out of a gumban. <laughs> um, because in 2013, like in, during the, to, like the summer of 2013, we had like a big commune and uh, it was like almost um, a summer of like an uprisings in Turkey, sorry. And right afterwards, we started having a very significant authoritarian regime. So ever since that, around those times, I have been thinking about this. What does it mean? to have, to be living in a state of exception or a state of emergency. The idea of the void and the, the idea of like a, to think about void as, as a topology came out of from his book on state of exception. Uh, and there he says that during state of exceptions, a, a void opens up and it is where we have to locate politics now. But very interestingly, he did not touch upon that ever again. So it was it's almost that he left it suspended. And ever since I read that, I've been trying to make sense of it in a way for the past 10 years. But together with all the questions that you're asking, for instance, in terms of politics or what does it mean to build a politics in in these states of exceptions or in these states of emergencies? It's only in the past three years that I started like making it into a book. I mean, it's a draft and it's a manuscript and hopefully by the time this podcast is out, <laughs> it will be on its way of becoming like an official book. We'll see. Now, in, in the way that Agamben talks about the void in the state of exception, in your view, does it have a kind of relationship to event in the way that Badu talks about? Or how do you, how do you, what are the different ways you think about the void through <laughs> Agamben. <laughs> Through Agamben. It is definitely related to the event. I'm not sure if it is related to the event in the way that Badiou thinks about it. 
because a I don't know too much of of Badio, so it's definitely Badio is above my pay grade. <laughs> Maybe you can speak to it. I always <laughs> I always joke with all of you, Lacan. Badio is for people. Uh, Lacan is for people who haven't read Badio yet. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> But in terms of, I mean, again, to turn to Deleuze, I think it, there is something about the event there because it's in Deleuze, the event is something very minor. It's a matter of encounter. And so you encounter someone. I encountered you this morning. I couldn't wake up. And having this conversation is I'm now alive, right? It's a, it's a good encounter. So an event is is something as as minor as this. And as I was, and when I'm thinking of obviously about the only event, the big event that I experienced, is it was a matter of like these very collection of these minor events. What was happening in Istanbul, for instance, or it was the um, what I have been reading again with all of these encampments, uh, with the Occupy movement, uh, with Tahrir Square, right? What was going on there, and it's it's very different from the the big events or the revolutions that we think about it's more like uh, they're all forms of commune and what happens in a commune it's a on the one hand nothing happens <laughs> it's actually a very flat form of being that you continue with your day you cook uh, you clean uh, you get together but on the other hand there's a different kind of like a, a collectivity that's built so it is also made out of these encounters and you are encountering people you have no idea that you are going to find yourself together with i do remember one day walking uh with with someone from the university i was working at back then and i know him to be an ultra like right wing fascist and at the faculty meetings he was like he was having tears in his eyes when he was talking about like being a turk and things and all of a sudden he's next to me he's there in the commune so you know i mean it's you have that it's a minor encounter it is it goes back to this unhingedness uh it's because he's unhinged <laughs> that he finds himself there and it's because i'm maybe unhinged in a different way that I am speaking to him, right? It it makes something to you. So it is it is an event. And, and where does it take place? It takes place in the void. Because what is the space of the commune? It's nothing. You cannot define it as any space. It's not an empty space. It is not a... So for instance, when people were like forming communes or occupations or encampments in parks or in squares. Is it still a park? No. Is it a square? No. I mean, it's it's a void. It's an indefinite space. It's a space of, it's an indeterminate space where you have no idea in a way how to build, what can happen. It's It's undefined. So... That's what I'm calling it. I'm calling yeah, it's a, it. I, I cannot help but like have this Bedou because it's sort of like in, in a Bedouin reading of the, what you're describing, it's the transformational political opportunity or opening that comes from that is, is relates to the fidelity to the event. And he talks about fidelity in a different way than Deleuze, perhaps. But it's interesting. This is a great place for a conversation. I know. How does, how does he talk about fidelity? Because Deleuze talks about distrust. Ah, interesting. He says that I, I distrust my friends. <laughs> and, interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I and you can take it to to almost like to the point of you betray your friends. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? Because because your symptom also betrays the friends. I mean, if I'm going to become friends with you through your symptom or oh, this is such a bad way to of articulation, but still <laughs> if I am going to be charmed by your symptom, then I'm also uh, in a way, betraying everything that I hold dear, right? Right, right. I'm wondering if we can speak a little bit to, well, someone who was a contemporary of Lacan and and others, uh, Althusser, in, in thinking about the void. Althusser writes about the philosophy of the encounter in some of his uh, later works. Uh, I've seen Catherine Malibu's talked about this before. And wondering if you can speak a little bit um, to your 
relationship to some of those texts sure. of, of Althusser. Oh yes, absolutely. The uh, the philosophy of the encounter text is uh, is a text I'm working on uh, right now, and um, it's a very interesting text because it is. I mean, it's interesting in the sense that Althusser is writing it after the tragic event in his life, after he accidentally kills his wife and he was in a mental institution for three years. uh, And then I think he comes and goes again. uh, And then he finds himself uh, and he has been living in uh, on the fifth arrondissement in Paris, which is uh, which is a fancy area of Paris. And then all of a sudden, he finds himself himself on the fourteenth, towards the outskirts, at a working class neighborhood. And when he looks back to his life, the only concept for him that makes sense is the void. Right. So, in in him redefining his life, and redefining his work, uh, redefining um, the thread of what makes, of what we talk about today as an Althusserian philosophy, if there's anything like that, is written through the void. So he is going over from like everything he has written so far, like from Machiavelli, from Hobbes, Marx, Montesquieu, all of it, you would see that it's the void that holds them together. So it tells us something, right? I mean, it, and we have been talking about Malibu too. Malibu has um, has a book that's called Plasticity at the Dusk of Writing. Uh, it's interesting because it is almost very similar to Althusser that she finds herself at a moment of shaking up. I don't know quite well where it corresponded in his in her life, but all of a sudden she looks back and she writes something on plasticity. So these concepts, and, and of course she has been writing about plasticity, but not in the way that she has been thinking about plasticity before. I mean, it takes on a different form. And for Althusser too, Althusser has written about the blank space, for instance. Uh, if you look at the beginning of the reading capital, you will see that uh, he is talking about, again, about the symptom, about the blank spaces, about these uh, gaps. Uh, in reading, what he calls the symptomatic reading. So it is there, but all of a sudden, void becomes the thing that holds him together, which I think is a very, it's very telling. I find a little bit of like, um, what do you call it? A chagrin, um, some kind of um, tragedy in it. But it's also, uh, it's there uh, that, that Althusser all of a sudden thinks that encounter, an encounter is the encounter in the void. And so, he is encountering also the works that he has done before through through the concept of the void. So it's also a kind of like a, uh, a conversation with his former self. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, Althusser gets uh, his, his work on ideological state apparatuses, oftentimes read alongside Gramsci's notebooks, but his later work, um, for at least for a very long time, uh, hasn't been taken up, but it's interesting how it's coming up again and again. I wonder if you could speak a little bit more to Malibu's concept of plasticity, what, um, how she takes it up and, and its relationship to the, 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 the void. I, well, I mean, I, I cannot speak exactly to plasticity as such, uh, but, but I can speak to destructive plasticity because that's where, for me, her work comes in. Because destructive plasticity is where she defines it as... Um, We've been talking about this. Something happens in your life and you always you find yourself starting from zero. A destructive force within you or a destructive force that that allows you to split from your former self. And then what happens there? And in the beginning of she has a <clears throat> she has a wonderful essay on uh, on destructive plasticity it's called The Ontology of the Accident. And there she defines the lives, or she talks about the lives, for instance, uh, you have an accident, like a literal accident, Uh, you have a trauma, and after trauma, you don't know who you are anymore. So your life starts there. And from there on, she takes the notion of, she doesn't talk about the void, but she talks about starting from zero and having a life that is completely different or the possibility of having a life that's completely different from from before 
And the reason why I like it so much uh, is because she's not thinking about it in terms of metamorphosis, that something gradually changes and there's always something within you that you have been bringing with you. No, this is a this is a radical change. So what is the possibility of how, how first of all, how are we going to conceptualize the radical change? And secondly, uh, she says that it's not only a change in the content, but it's also a change in the form. So what does it mean, right? It's so it's so fascinating because to think about it, I mean, A, like what does it mean to be thinking about a change in form for human beings? And there she gives the example of Marguerite Duras. So she says that overnight she has aged and we have all seen it. It happened like one day she was young and beautiful and charming. And the next day she was old. She was an old woman. So what happens there? Like, what does it that makes this that makes this very sudden change happen? And who is she afterwards and who was she? So you see, I mean, the, the destructive plasticity, I think it goes with also, it goes with Althusser. She, she doesn't give reference to Althusser in that book, but but she definitely, I think Althusser is there, right? Yeah, yeah. In, in fact, when she came to speak at UBC um, five, six years ago, there was a reading group that was set up at 221A that Amy Kazimerchuk and others were coordinating. And uh, some of the readings included Althusser's philosophy of the encounter and uh, she came and she spoke um, to it as well and referenced Althusser so I'm sure it's it's very much there influenced uh, by it I'm really um, I think it's great uh, the way Catherine Malibu's work is being uh, taken up I was doing a seminar uh, with her a number of years ago must have been 2012 or 2013 and just the first 15 minutes of it was um, you know giving a definition of Foucault's notion of biopolitics and Agamben's notion of biopolitics and Derrida's notion of biopolitics, and she just paused for a second and she said they were all wrong, the three of them, <laughs> and then she proceeded to move in a different way of what biopolitics actually is, and you know going into scientific and other notions, and she completely dismissed uh, these you know uh, titans of philosophy just as a warm-up act in 15 minutes it was really quite beautiful to encounter that i have something to say about yeah, that yeah. no this is brilliant thank you Anne, for that <laughs> for that anecdote it's, it's so good because i mean i b before i was reading her i was also like looking into her interviews and she always says that i have like I had I don't have the kind of like the decorum to be an academic or to be a, like a philosopher because I'm very out there and I just like say things uh, like that. And on that note, they were all wrong. The amazing, like life changing talk that I listened by her was where she was talking about Foucault's governmentality and the notion of governance. And uh, I don't remember where she gave this. This was like during the pandemic, so it was over Zoom. And I was so grateful. It was one of the <laughs> only things that made like pandemic worse <laughs> in a way. Because what she said was that with governance, with the concept of governance, you're always in the in the bind of uh, submission or obedience uh, and, and control or domination. Like even if when Foucault was talking about like the governance of the self, uh, what he means is that you have to have very strict dominance on yourself and you have to, in a way, commit yourself. You have to subordinate yourself to, I would say now, like the superego in you. What she finds to be unhinged in Foucault is his latest uh, seminar, which is uh, like the Courage of Truth and where he talks about the Ogenes and the Kinnicks or the Cynics, um, and there, because he's not trying to define another life, but he's trying to define a life that's other, which is very different what Malibu was saying. And that was the only thing to define not another life. How can another life be possible? How can another politics be possible? How can another, I mean, to go back to the, the beginning of the conversation, right? Uh, how can another nation be possible? How can another community be possible? No, it is a life other. It is a community other. 
I'm not going to go even into nation because <laughs> I think it's one of these evil concepts. But so so she has such a good reading. She's an amazing reader, and she's so bold and so daring to to say that yes, this is this is what I see, and they were wrong. <laughs> like right, Foucault could not get out of like domination and subordination. Who would say so, right? Because we're all thinking today about like the technologies of the self, care of the self, or I'm taking care of myself as if it's a liberation. But what she's saying is that, no, this is not liberate. This is not liberatory at all. Yeah, I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to um, some of the work of Hart and Negri and how you've been thinking, thinking it through. Well, I mean, it's especially when I was preparing for, for the podcast and, um, and I was taking notes, uh, all of a sudden I, I thought that whether the idea of what do we find in common that Deleuze asked can be thought in terms of the commons uh, that Hart and Negri are talking about, right? Because it is, it's a commons made out of singularities and it's a commons that is both bringing in the multitude and also it is what is generating the multitude. So the question for me and their book about the assembly, uh, that's called the assembly, it ends on such an amazing note that is that's still giving me goosebumps is that we still don't know what a multitude can do. It's um, kind of like a different uh, version of Spinoza's. We never know what we don't know what a body can do. Uh, so it's it's that uh, to think about the multitude as a body. Uh, and when we're talking about multitude as a body, when we're talking about it in terms of singularities, late Lacan, his notion of the synthom is, is a body event. So I cannot not like see some kind of a, or hear some kind of a resonance with Lacan, Deleuze, Hart and Negri, Spinoza coming all together and asking the question of, again, to, to go back to Deleuze, what would it be mean to think, for instance, multitude in terms of, of, of a body that is, that has a symptom and that it's, it's bringing the symptom out or that it is living the symptom Right. I mean, it's uh, for years uh, people thought that Deleuze and Lacan they have been there, they have been on the separate side, and but it's not true actually. Uh, there are people who are bringing them together, and I think that also theoretically and politically, if we can, if we are thinking about the question of the event, if we're thinking about the question of the political community, they can all be brought together and to be thinking precisely experimentally and speculatively, what does it mean to be a common? What does it mean to be a common of singularities? What does it mean to be a common of a common that that generates these, right? Because it's also, I mean, we're talking about the we're talking about that lives, for instance, that do not have any anchor or any like a land or a terrain that is definite or that's defined. So a common is also something like that. We're not talking about the ancient commons, even there that uh, the land was was not something that was that belonged to anyone. Um, it was a common use. So it did not have a definition in the sense of like it did not define a nation. It did not define a community, but it defined a way of use or a way of being together. So I think that here they do come together. And I think Hart and Negri, they obviously they, they are Deleuzeans. Uh, but I think that it, it's a literature uh, that would definitely be very interesting to think with with Lacan and especially with work of the the work of the late Lacan that thinks about the body and and the symptom through the body uh, because in the earlier work of Lacan it's all about language uh, the body is not there but in the late Lacan the body is there it is there through its jouissance it's there through the the effect of the signifier in a way Sun, you of course teach at some um, Emily Carr, and and of course you know the the courses that you take on and the the themes are probably really helpful in terms of generative in terms of your own um, writing and thinking. I know you've done some courses on silences and in the void, art and politics of getting lost, and I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to um, some of the courses you've taught in the past and what you were trying to do with them and how your teaching practice informs or regenerates or excites your 
research and writing? Well, teaching has always been very generative for me because I, I mean, I never thought even when I was working in a, like a proper sociology department, I never thought what everybody thought that I was supposed to teach. Um, this is a little confession. <laughs> so I never thought the canon, uh, even when I was teaching like sociological theory, uh, it wasn't like Marx, Webb, Weber and Durkheim. It was always like, oh, I'm very much interested in Foucault or Agamben or if to, if it were today, I would teach Malibu. So no, so for me, it's it's very generative and that's where I kind of try out and experiment with ideas. And uh, the courses I was teaching at, uh, I am still teaching at Emily Carr, especially the seminars. For a very long time, I thought uh, post-humanist theory. And what I was trying to, I think, look for in post-humanism is, is kind of like a way out of the, of partially the exigencies, the predicaments of, of contemporary theory. But to my surprise, I couldn't find any. <laughs> I mean, for me, posthumanism stops at the moment where we imply a simple difference between humans and non-humans and between living, non-living. Sometimes we compile them together. Sometimes we say that different and we approach it. So, and I, and I know that I'm terribly like caricaturizing it and terribly like reducing it a whole amazing like uh, literature to to a binary in a way but I couldn't find anything there and much I would say and so I started to um, so these two courses that you mentioned silences and voids and afterwards art and politics of getting lost uh, were exactly what I was trying to do in my in my book trying to think about silence and void through artworks and also the idea of getting lost where do we get lost? I was, uh, for instance, one of the works that I talked about is Francis Elise's short video on, it's called Rehearsal. Uh, and it's all about a car driving up the hill and then going down, driving up and then going down. So <laughs> with the students, we were thinking, are, is are, is this car trying to make it over the hill? So is he is it rehearsing something or is it just like making that motion? So for instance, it is for me, again, that hill and that space is, is a space of where you get lost and it's it's a void essentially, because you don't know looking at the at the work itself, what is it that that's doing? There's an Annie or No book called Getting Lost. I know. I know. And it's the and it's the diary of yeah, the yeah, yeah. of the simple passion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. I was just telling yesterday yeah, this yeah. it's so interesting that this came up last night at the Salon uh, organizational meeting. Uh Ted and Chris were talking about that book. And I said, like, I don't think any man should read. <laughs> That's hilarious. You brought up the Lacan Salon, and uh, you're, of course, involved. I'm wondering if you could talk a, a little bit about the Salon, particularly for our listeners who might not be involved or know about it or, or could be interested about it, you know, what it is, um, what's happening. Even the group's been meeting at SFU for quite a while now, but originally started back at the Roundhouse Community Center many years ago. Well, I hope everybody will be interested, or lots of people will be interested, because it is... Um so since April, now there's a new board. Uh, there was an AGM. Uh, and with that, uh, there are very significant changes that are being introduced. Um, first of all, it is a joint presidency or joint chairship. I don't know what you would call it. So uh, it's Hilda and me. And in a way, I think we're kind of like coordinating. But if you look at the meetings, it's not our voice. It's everybody's speaking. It's, it's a collective effort. So that needs to be mentioned. Uh, and collectively, what we would like to do is, first of all, not only to read seminars. I mean, that's one thing that Le Cancelon always did that Tuesday. The holy book. The holy book. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> So we're not only reading seminars now, although it is like we are reading seminars. So every Tuesday we're reading seminars and um, sorry, every bi-weekly Tuesdays. 
But um, alternate, we also decided on something uh, that is called our alternate Tuesdays. Uh, and it came out of an idea uh, of Paul Kinsbury, uh, who's still on board. Uh, what he said was that um, when I want to think about something, an academic question, an intellectual question, uh, I would like to just come and without the mediation of a text, I would just like to speak about it and I would like to be heard. So how does he have time for this when he's busy ghost hunting? He's ghost hunting? Well, that's part of his research as a geographer. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Anyways, we won't talk about that today, <laughs> but we need to have him on as a guest to talk about some of the work that he does, which is super interesting. No, absolutely. Now I have to talk to him. <laughs> absolutely. Ghost hunting. <laughs> and Hilda's been with him ghost hunting, in fact. Um, so that's that's one of the other things. But I do have another thing to say. So we are also forming uh, or we're encouraging people to call form cartels. Sounds a bit fascist. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I, please go on. Um, well, cartel uh, obviously sounds fascist. <laughs> It's not a drug cartel. It's definitely... I have no idea why Lacan chose that word. And whenever I mention it to someone, it's always like with laughter and with like... Um, anyways, uh, a cartel is something that uh, four to five people form. Um, and there's someone that's called a plus one who acts as the mediator, facilitator. A cartel is like the... It's a, it's a work group. And thing that I love most about the cartel, the idea of the cartel, is that it's completely horizontal. And the only thing that you need to bring in is your curiosity or desire to read Lacan. You might have not he heard of anything else, but you might have just seen a quote of Lacan and be captured by it. And then you can say that, oh, I want to work on this. And then you can find yourself in a cartel who, with someone who's been working on Lacan for 30 years. Right in a cartel, they're equals. So this is what we're trying to also promote in a way: people to form cartels and people to kind of like engage in uh, in the work of Lacan. Should be like it sounds a bit cultish, but uh, but uh, I trust and love you guys. I'm sure it's going to be fine. We love you too, Am. <laughs> You're a good friend of the salon. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's cultish. <laughs> One of the things that you, when we talked about earlier, you were talking a little bit about um, thinking through the politics of practices and how might the practice of psychoanalysis produce its own forms of politics or what might it have to say or help us think through political struggle. So I'm wondering if you could speak uh, a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I only have questions about that because I have been thinking a lot about uh, and trying to un try to understand how what would be the relationship between psychoanalysis and politics. And uh, there's always some, one thing that um, that people um, in a certain Lacanian circle would say that as an analyst, you only you only intervene in a session. So otherwise, it would be. I mean, you can talk about a politician and you can diagnose it, right? You can say, like, this is what's happening with his, like, discourse. This is where they're faltering. And this is, like, you can be talking about the slips. You can be talking about this and that. But but that's, that's the interpretation that everybody can do. My question is, what can an analyst with the skill set that they have which is like punctuating, cutting, interpreting, uh, scansion. What can, how can we think about politics with these concepts? And I don't think that there's a there's an answer to it, uh, essentially. But that is what I'm curious about. I'm I don't want to be analyzing the capitalist discourse. Um, and I know that there are lots of like Lacanians, like very interesting and very valuable work that's going over there. But for me, that would be playing the role of the metapsychology or to be playing the role of the, in a way, the master and saying that this is what, what's it all about. I'm more interested in these very minor things or the, or the practices or the skill sets that, that people have, that practitioners have 
and what they can do with that in terms of politics. So uh, partially the question came before, as I started to work in at Emily Carr, because all of a sudden I find myself as a sociologist amidst artists <laughs> and all I have, all I have is, is language and all they have is their hands and, and the different practice. So as I was trying to get close to them, as I was trying to find a way to both communicate or to teach, to have dialogue or some kind of a, yeah, like, um, a dialogue going on, that's where I started to think that, okay, maybe I can think about like, what does it mean when somebody is painting? Like what kind of, how can I, how can I paint my argument? You know, or how can I dance a thesis? How can I perform a question? Right, all of these things started coming up, and finally, as I landed on uh, Lacan, um, I cannot say land; I'm still somewhere up there. <laughs> Once I was captured by by Lacan very much, uh, that's what I started to think about in terms of psychoanalysis. What does it mean uh, for a psychoanalyst to be? to be doing politics with with everything that that they do in the consulting room. Wondering uh, if you could maybe speak to how you first encountered Lacan. Were you in university at the time? Did you like where, where did you first encounter? Through Zizek. Yeah, through Zizek. And um, it was I was like reaching towards the end of my PhD. There I was start, started to read Zizek and uh, he was so eye-opening at the moment, and and his polemical style at the moment really helped me. I even have a, a, a thank you note for Zizek <laughs> in my dissertation. <laughs> so, and then I think I taught a few courses, not courses, sorry, a few lectures in one of these like theory courses about Zizek's reading of Lacan. But then it all stopped for me. And then in 2018, uh, it was Clint Burnham, uh, who, was the, who was the president of the Lacan Salon, and he invited me. So this is also like a public thank you for, <laughs> for him to introducing me into, into Lacan, because the minute that I stepped in and the minute I started reading, uh, we were reading Formations of the Unconscious, Seminar 5, uh, the minute I started reading, I couldn't stop. So that's my introduction into into Lacan, it's just, it's been going on ever since. <laughs> Sanam, is there anything you'd, you'd like to add? No, I think this is, this is perfect. We should, we should talk about that bad view comment you made. <laughs> <laughs> this is an ongoing jousting and uh, shit talking we do with each other. It's all in jest. Cool. <laughs> One of these days I will find a very good answer to that. I don't have it. You got, you caught me off guard. <laughs> <laughs> Completely. Sadam, thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar. Um, thank you so much for having me. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you. Below the Radar is a knowledge democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Thanks for listening to our conversation with Sanam Guvench. The Lacan Salon convenes in person and online every second Tuesday from 7 to 9 p.m. Pacific time and welcomes all fellow enthusiasts of psychoanalysis and intellectual exploration. Find out more about how to join them as well as additional resources in our show notes. If you would like to support our podcast, you can donate at the link in the description below. Your generous donation will help support the podcast's activities and associated public events with SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Below the Radar.